Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. I hope I will not be entirely out of place if I mention another book by Max Stiles. I, I hear that one was mentioned, this book called Evangelism, but if you know something about evangelism but need some refreshment in the motivation to evangelize, I recommend his little book, um, oh no, the Messengers, the Mark, Marks of the Messenger, uh, Marks of the Messenger. It doesn't tell you how to do it, it just makes you want to do it. Um, and for some of us, that's uh, more needed than the other. So. Um, Don't worry, he doesn't give me a commission. (laughs) So we turn now to Isaiah 56 and 57. This is the beginning of the third part of Isaiah. And I shall read by, I shall begin by reading both chapters. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Come, all you beasts of the field, come and devour, all you beasts of the forest. Israel's watchmen are blind, they all lack knowledge. They are all mute dogs, they cannot bark. They lie around and dream, they love to sleep. They are dogs with mighty appetites, they never have enough. They are shepherds who lack understanding, they all turn to their own way. They seek their own gain. Come, each one cries, let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer. And tomorrow will be like today, or even far better. The righteous perish, and no one takes it to heart. The devout are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. 
but you. Come here, you children of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. Who are you mocking? At whom do you sneer and stick out your tongue? Are you not a brood of rebels, the offspring of liars? You burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. You sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. The idols among the smooth stones of the ravines are your portion. Indeed, they are your lot. Yes, to them you have poured out drink offerings and offered grain offerings. In view of all this, should I relent? You have made your bed on a high and lofty hill. There you went up to offer your sacrifices. Behind your doors and your doorposts you have put your pagan symbols. Forsaking me, you uncovered your bed. You climbed into it and opened it wide. You made a pact with those whose beds you love, and you looked with lust on their naked bodies. You went to Moloch with olive oil and increased your perfumes. You sent your ambassadors far away. You descended to the very realm of the dead. You wearied yourself by such going about, but you would not say, it is hopeless. You found renewal of your strength, and so you did not faint. Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have not been true to me and have neither remembered me nor taken this to heart? Is it not because I have long been silent that you do not fear me? I will expose your righteousness and your works, and they will not benefit you. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry all of them off. A mere breath will blow them away. But whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. And it will be said, build up, build up, Prepare the road. Remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not accuse them forever, nor will I always be angry. For then they would faint away because of me, the very people I have created. I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them and hid my face in anger, yet they kept on in their willful ways. I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. This is the word of the Lord. To understand these chapters well, we must remind ourselves of where they fall in the prophecy of Isaiah. Chapters 1 to 37, 36, 37, is the first section. There the Messiah is presented as the coming king. 
We saw that a day or two ago. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son, a king is given, who shall reign on the throne of his father David. His name is given as Emmanuel. And at the historical level, the canvas on which these prophecies are given is the portrait of Israel, Judah in particular, the southern kingdom, confronting the historical pressures of the day. The northern tribes are taken off into captivity to the Assyrians, and the southern tribes barely escape the wrath of Sennacherib. But then in chapters 38 to 55, Isaiah predicts both the Babylonian captivity of his people, that is, the captivity of the southern tribes, which will actually begin after Isaiah is dead. He's looking forward in history with a vision of a prophet, and he predicts their return. And upon their return, people will come from the north to the area that becomes uh, Samaria, and uh, to the south, to the area that we know of as Judea. And there on this canvas, the coming Messiah is presented as the servant. God has a number of servants in those chapters, but the suffering servant of chapter 53 is the one who is wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And then in the third section, beginning in chapter 56, running to 66, Isaiah probes the experiences and circumstances of the returnees. And that becomes the canvas on which to paint the third portrait of Messiah, the Messiah as the conquering hero. And here the conflict theme becomes huge. Sin and destruction and death on the one hand and forgiveness and atonement and restoration and the new heaven and the new earth on the other. And these themes build and build and build until they come to a climax in chapter 65 and 66. We shall look further into this section tomorrow morning and, God willing, tomorrow evening. So, the Messiah is seen as king in 1 to 37, as servant in 38 to 55, and now he is the conquering hero as God himself visits his people. The conquering hero theme is especially strong for those of you who are taking notes in 59.14 to 63.6. We'll glance at some of these texts a little later. So although the passage on the suffering servant displays a completed salvation, that is, the suffering servant actually does pay for our sin. The, the salvation is, is completed in principle. Yet, at the same time, the people are still waiting for it to be put into effect. So we read in 56.1, Maintain justice, do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. It's akin to our situation today. You and I look back on the salvation that has already been won for us in Christ, but yet we look forward to seeing this salvation put into full effect when the Master himself returns at the culmination of the end of the ages. So now we come to our text, 56 and 57. We proceed in three parts as Isaiah paints three portraits and then we'll see how they come together and apply to us today. Number one, portrait of a righteous God who welcomes all contrite sinners. Portrait of a righteous God 
who welcomes all contrite sinners. 56, 1 to 8. On the one hand, verses 1 and 2, maintain justice, do what is right, the Lord's salvation is close at hand. And yet, on the other hand, God welcomes those who are normally excluded, the foreigner, the aliens, the eunuchs. And let's follow the flow of the argument. On the one hand, verses 1 and 2, maintain justice, do what is right, do what God demands, what He ordains, do what is right, what is good. For my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness, which in the context is the fullest display of His goodness and glory and righteousness in the consummation, will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this. And then with a particular application, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Why the Sabbath is mentioned in particular is not entirely clear. But here and a little farther on in the chapter, there's this additional phrase that is really fascinating. Did you hear it? Who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it. Which I think presupposes it's possible to keep the Sabbath while desecrating it. Blessed is the one who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it. In other words, there is a way of keeping the Sabbath which itself is disgusting. Just as a little farther on, we'll see in a few minutes, these people are condemned for their righteousnesses. Isaiah is the one who later on in the book says, even your righteousness is like filthy rags. There is a way of keeping the Sabbath that is still a desecration. It, it turns on mere conformity to rules, but in your heart of hearts, you're, you're not loving God any better for it. Dean Swift, who wrote Gulliver's Travels in the 18th century, says of certain fashionable ladies of his day, they were so busy being religious that they had no time to say their prayers. And in a similar vein, it's possible so to keep the Sabbath that you have no time really to seek the Lord himself. So blessed are those in particular who, who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who keep their hands from doing any evil. But enlarge the horizon, Isaiah says. God welcomes also those whom the old covenant actually excludes, the foreigner, the son of an alien. There was a procedure for admitting aliens. It's mentioned in Genesis 17, Exodus 12, Numbers 9, and elsewhere. But nevertheless, the old covenant was predominantly based on the line from Abraham. And foreigners were excluded in principle apart from the exceptional cases. And the eunuch, well, Deuteronomy 23.1 bans eunuchs from the covenant assembly, possibly, at least in some cases, those who had been castrated for pagan cultic reasons, which was not uncommon. But in any case, they are banned from the covenant assembly. So now listen to what this text says. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord, that is, who wants to serve him, who wants to be faithful to him, whose heart is his, say, the Lord will ex surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. There's no hope for me. 
I can't be intimate with God. I cannot be part of this renewed, revivified, covenantal community. Don't do that. Don't say that. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls, from which in theory they're excluded, a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. They can't have the sons and daughters, they're eunuchs. But something better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name that will endure forever. Oh, he'll make them part of the family all right. One remembers what Jesus says to those who give up mother and father and family and kin for me and for my name's sake, Jesus says, they shall have even in this life a hundredfold of children. And for foreigners, well, foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, like Rahab, for example, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, and who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it. That is, there is integrity in their worship. And who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. They weren't even supposed to approach the altar, even get into the altar's court. They were supposed to stick off in the corner in the court of the Gentiles. But my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. One of those captivating mini-texts that are scattered through Isaiah that anticipate an extension of the locus of God's people from the returnees amongst the Jews to men and women from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. We looked at one yesterday in Isaiah 19, Assyrians and Egyptians joining together with Israel to constitute the people of God on a superhighway that runs right through the Middle East. Do you not overhear the voice of God saying, I am calling Egyptians and Qataris and Iraqis and Iranians and Jews, Israel my people, Iranians my people, Egyptians my people. That's not something you can manipulate into existence by clever politics. This takes the power of God. Indeed, Jesus picks up on this particular text in the matter of the cleansing of the temple during what we call Holy Week. He overturns the tables of the money changers and drives out the animals and says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. You have made it a den of thieves. Jesus knows the Isaiah text and its context and sees its growing fulfillment in his own fledgling ministry on the short side of the cross. The sovereign Lord declares... He who gathers the exiles of Israel, that's still envisioned. 
He who gathers the exiles of Israel also says, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. And you're beginning to see how the prophecies of Isaiah look not simply to the return of the exiles to the land, the return of the Jerusalemites to Jerusalem, but there's a bigger gathering to which the first gathering points. We'll spend more time watching and learning how these prophecies with layers of future prediction unwind in the book of Isaiah. But already you see some of it here. God makes it explicit. The sovereign Lord who gathers the exiles of Israel. That's part of the vision of, of, of the prophet as he, as he looks beyond the captivity, the, the years of exile. What happens when they start returning? Well, God brings them back. God returns them to the land. But I will also gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Very often when I engage in university missions and throw things open to a Q&A time, one of the first questions that is asked today in any Western university is something like this. Do you really think that the Christian God is going to exclude people who don't believe in Jesus? Unless you become a Christian, you can't enter into heaven? Isn't that a bit narrow and right-wing and bigoted, narrow-minded and exclusivistic and and intolerant? What do you say? Well, there are the obvious things to say. Considering how wicked we are, it's amazing that God accepts any of us. There are other obvious things to say. The Bible envisages men and women from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, a vast number that no one can number. But there's still something more to be said. Are you trying to exclude me from what is good and right because you think I'm too narrow? Don't we all have some exclusion zones? I prefer the Bible's exclusion zones to your zones. The Bible's exclusion zones exclude people who hate righteousness. They don't exclude people because they're black or brown or because they're Chinese. The Bible's inclusion zones and bring in men and women from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. There is a miracle of breadth in these chapters in Isaiah that we shall contemplate more tomorrow. So that's the first portrait. That is the portrait of a righteous God who welcomes all contrite sinners. Number two portrait of an idolatrous, idolatrous people whose righteousness is foul. Let me repeat that. The portrait of an idolatrous people whose righteousness is foul. 56.9 to 57.13. We begin with a depiction of the failure of the leaders. Now, you may recall that in Isaiah chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, there's a depiction of leaders who are so immature, there are no statesmen among them, no, no people with breath. It's like a bunch of kids that are running the shop. But now there is a systematic denunciation of the leaders, the watchmen of Israel, both political and religious leaders, verses 9 to 12. Come, all you beasts of the field. Come and devour all you beasts of the forest. That is, bring on the judgment. Israel's watchmen, its leaders, are, now take a look. How are they categorized? 
Well, they're blind. Number two, they're ignorant. They all lack knowledge. Number three, they're all mute dogs they cannot bark. That is, they're unable to warn the people. They don't warn of the judgment that's coming. They don't call people to, to righteousness. They don't say judgment is looming over your head. They, they can't bark. They're mute. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They're lazy. Verse 11, they, have, they are fastened to their own appetites. They are dogs without a bark, but with mighty appetites. They, they never have enough. Not only so, they are without shepherding skills. They don't bring people on and help them and nourish them. No, no, no. They lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. That is, they are aflame with their own preferred sins. Verse 12, they are all highly addicted. Each one cries, let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer. Tomorrow will be like today or even far better. They can't read their own times. God says, come all you beasts of the field, come and devour all you beasts of the forest. So the leadership, political and religious, are idolatrous, lazy, corrupt, blind, immature, stupid, wicked, hedonistic. That doesn't sound terribly alien to me. Then, in chapter 57, verses 1 to 13, this becomes a strangely divided society. On the one hand, there are some righteous people described in 57, verses 1 and 2. But do you see how they're described? They're the privileged ones. They're the blessed ones because they die early. Isn't that remarkable? The righteous perish, and no one takes it to heart. The devout are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. That is, if you're so fastened on the good of living in this life, then you cannot see that dying may be a better good. If you're heading into terrible suffering as a culture, an early death, is not the worst thing. The Bible does look at death as the last enemy. That's true. But although it's the last enemy, it doesn't have the last word. And it's the last enemy through which you pass. But meanwhile, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And one day, res resurrection existence is coming where there will be no more sin or sorrow or death or pain or suffering of any kind, no evil, no lies, no deceit, no political corruption, no lying, no bragging, no boasting. So when it's the righteous who die, who die young, are we really going to sit around and say, oh, God must have really had it in for that lady? Or are we going to consider Maybe God's being kind to her to take her out of a life of suffering now. <clears throat> the devout are taken away and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. So in Scripture, sometimes a long life is a sign of God's blessing. Sometimes, as here in Scripture, a shorter life and being taken away for God's glory is a sign of even greater blessing. Everything depends on context. 
And meanwhile, Christians are to read the times and read the experiences in the light of God's holy word and God's character. But if on the one hand you have the righteous who die young, on the other hand, in this society are the perverse, verses 3 to 13. Verse 3 needs to be shocking. You children of a sorceress doesn't sound particularly terrifying. It sounds sort of mythical. It sounds like Harry and the magic ring. No, 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 no. Matir translates this, and this is accurate, sons of a witch, seed of an adulterer and a working prostitute. That's the language that's being used. This is the son of language that we introduced yesterday. This is what characterizes you. This is, this is the way your, your life is, is lining up. Do you see the language that's being used? Who are you mocking? At whom do you sneer and stick out your tongue? Are you not a brood of rebels? You burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. You sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. And then that is teased out in greater detail. Instead of going up to the temple and worshiping the God-ordained sacrifices, they were setting up shrines, little idols, on mountaintops and in ravines, on hillsides and next to spreading trees. And there they sacrificed their children in the ravines. One of the gods of the Canaanite pantheon was Moloch. Moloch was often depicted as a god, a stone god, who, who, who sat in a squatting position and held a, a stone bowl in his hands. And under the bowl, they would heat a fire until they got the bowl almost glowing a dull red. And then at the height of the sacrificial service, they would throw the child into the bowl and, and the child would burn to death. You sacrifice your children to Moloch. Of course, we don't do that today. We abort them instead. So Moloch is specifically mentioned in verse 9. And worshiping Moloch is equivalent to descending to the very realm of the dead, to Sheol. You descend to hell itself. So much of pagan religion in the ancient Near East was tied to fertility cults. That is, the way you ask the pagan gods to bring blessing on the fields was by offering sacrifices to these pagan gods in the hope that they would copulate together. These pagan gods would copulate. And in some forms of, of, of paganism, you, you, you would go and copulate yourself with a pagan priestess. Or if you were a woman, you'd go and copulate with a pagan priest in the hope that this would encourage the, 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 the gods to copulate. And if the gods copulated, then you'd have fruitfulness in the land. Now, not all fertility cults worked like that, but some of them did. And so the connection between adultery, fornication, sexual orgy on the one hand, and idolatry on the other quickly became part of the culture. And so as early as Deuteronomy, idolatry is symbolized by adultery, and adultery becomes a form of idolatry. And of course, one particular prophet makes that particularly strong in the Old Testament, the prophecy of Hosea. 
where God himself is portrayed as the almighty cuckold, the ultimate betrayed husband, because her people have gone and fornicated with other gods. Do you see? And that's why the language goes back and forth between sexual vulgarity on the one hand and idolatry on the other. It's hard to separate them after a while. And that's why in the Bible, a marriage, a faithful marriage, is so often used to portray the proper relationship between God and his covenant people, between Christ and the church. That's the kind of intimacy and joy that should be present instead of just deceit and unfaithfulness and perversity. You have made your bed on a high and lofty hill, verse 7. There you went up to offer your sacrifices. Behind your doorposts and your do doors and your doorposts, you have put your pagan symbols, forsaking me, and uncovered your bed. They've eventually become exhausted by their own sin, verses 10 and 11. You wearied yourself by such going about, such endless pursuit of pagan idolatry, but you would not say, what are we doing this for? It's hopeless. You found renewal of your strength. That is renewal of your strength in your pagan idolatry. So you did not faint. Why? Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have not been true to me? You have neither remembered me nor taken this to heart. If I'm silent so I do not clobber you right away, you don't fear me. Do you know what I will do? Verse 12, God says, I will expose your righteousness and your works. You see, from the paganist's perspective, from the perspective of the betraying members of the Israelite heritage, they're practicing religion. Why criticize me? I'm being religious. I'm being devout. I, I offer all of these sacrifices. I'm righteous. I'm a righteous person. I'm a good person. Don't you understand? And God says, I will expose your righteousness and your works. This theme keeps recurring in this book. Chapter 64, we read, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. Do you see, if even our righteous acts are foul, how on earth can we save ourselves? Here is one of the huge differences between Islam and biblical Christianity. Read the Quran. Read it for yourself. You'll discover that it's, it's structured into a number of shuras that are basically becoming shorter as the book gets on. And, oh, about 90% of the text is God's declaration of who he is and his demand for obedience his exhortation, even his threats to bring punishment. And the result is uh, an image, a, a structure in, in which your only hope of being accepted before this God is by being good enough. It's merit theology in the purest and simplest form. Obey God, obey Allah, submit to him, and there's a chance if you submit enough and are good enough that you, you, you will be accepted on the last day. God comes along and says, uh -uh. you don't understand. Even your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. 
You see, the first criticism of this approach to salvation is that it doesn't take sin seriously enough. You can say more things about not having a sacrifice and all the rest, but the first criticism is that it's very light on what sin is. So here is a portrait of an idolatrous people whose righteousness is foul. Finally, portrait of a persevering God who is the only hope for the God-damned. Portrait of a persevering God who is the only hope for the God-damned. Verses 14 to 21. The important point to recognize in these verses is that the people whom God saves in these verses are sinners. So we read, for example, verse 16, I will not accuse them forever, nor will I always be angry, for then they would faint away because of me, the very people I've created. I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them and hid my face in anger, yet they kept on in their sinful ways. I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips. Peace, peace to those far and near. In other words, the important thing to see in this section is that the people whom God saves are those who are sinners. Here is a portrait of a persevering God who is the only hope for the God-damned. Build up, verse 14, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people, for this is what the high and lofty and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite, but it's not because by this contrition they've earned the forgiveness of God. They are sinners, which is what the next verses say. They are sinners who have experienced already the wrath and judgment of God. But now God comes to them and says, verse 19, peace, peace to those far and near, and I will heal them. But you know something that's even more striking in this passage? You see, we've had all these passages in which God is against sinners. We've had some passages where God is going to save sinners. And then we discover in this passage that the sinners whom God saves are the sinners against whom he's been enraged. And, and so we discover God saving sinners and being judicially wrathful against sinners. After we read verse 19, peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. We then read verse 20, but the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Then what is going on? If there's no peace for the wicked, then how is it that the wicked are saved? Do, do you see? And this tension services often in Isaiah and becomes stronger and stronger as we'll see as we get on in this third section. But you know, it goes back as far as Exodus. Turn, if you will, for a moment to Exodus 34. 
This is this remarkable passage in which God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock. No one can see God's glory and live, he says. But Moses is hidden, the cleft is covered over, and God passes by. And after he has passed by and has gone on a bit, Moses is permitted to peek out the rock and see something of the trailing edge of the afterglow of the glory of God. But while God is passing in front of Moses, such that Moses cannot see, God intones certain words so that God's revelation comes not in brilliant light, but in his words, where God is disclosing something of who he is, what he's like in words. Do you hear that? 34.6 of Exodus. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And everybody's saying, yes, yes, amen, bring it on. And then he adds, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And there's something in you that wants to say, well, which is it? And the answer is, yes. It's a tension that runs right through the Old Testament. Surfaces again and again and again on Isaiah. It is a tension that is not finally resolved in redemptive history until the cross. You get these images of God forgiving sin, showing compassion, full of chesed v'amev, Faithfulness and, and, and compassion, uh, love and, and, and truth, grace and truth, and, 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 and forgiving sins to thousands. And then immediately we're told, and God doesn't forget anybody's sin, and somebody's got to pay for them. There are glimpses of the payment already, three chapters back in Isaiah 53, 54. Who has believed this report? He grew up before him as a tender plant. All we like sheep have gone astray, but God has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. Here's a portrait of a persevering God who is the only hope for the God damned. Let me conclude. What shall we take away from this chapter? Number one, we cannot bring in revival ourselves. Some people picture revival as something you can turn on and off by simply trying harder. Observe the Sabbath more carefully. Make sure more people have their devotions. Make sure there are no resentments in the church. You can bring in revival. You can turn it on and off like a spigot, provided you're good enough, covenantally faithful enough. But that's not the way it works in these chapters. God does bring in reformation and revival. He does restore the fortunes of his people. 
but it's out of sheer grace, and it's when he wants. Number two, but we can set our faces to seek the Lord, to repent, to ask for his grace, whether that grace comes soon and quickly or slowly and in the future. Hence, it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way for my people, 57, 14, and 15. For this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Never despise the day of small things, but never think for a moment that you can choose to bring in reformation and revival yourself. You seek the Lord with contrition, with intercessory prayer, and beg for mercy, and understand that if you're doing this, it's already a sign of God's mercy on you that you're doing it because even your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. I know that's true in my life. I get down to pray with some friends about, about the needs of the age and our concern for revival, and there's a little part of me niggling away at the back of my mind thinking how holy I am for coming to a prayer meeting. Isn't that disgusting? Oh, maybe I'm the only one in this room that ever thinks like that, but... <laughs> You see, even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We have such a long way to go. And God brings punishment on unrighteousness and mocks our righteousness. Even while he pours out blessing, his own resolution to bring peace to those who are far away. Which brings me to the point, the third observation something we have to remind, of our, remind ourselves of constantly. God is our judge, and we are damned. And God is our only hope, and we are saved. Do, do you see, it's possible in the field of mission to think of our condemnation as somehow bound up with our sin and wickedness, but somehow removed from God. God is sort of superintending all of this in some sort of Machiavellian way, perhaps. But, but what God is really interested in is, is being nice to us. So therefore, let's go as missionaries so God can be nice to other people too. It's not quite right. God stands over against Muslims in the UAE and Irishmen in Bangor in righteous indignation and wrath, recognizing as he does that even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. He stands over against us in wrath because that's what we deserve and he is holy. But he also stands over against us in love because he's that kind of God. He doesn't have to love Don Carson but he has loved Don Carson with an everlasting love, mediated through his son on the cross, bearing my sin in his own body on the tree. You see, there is a dynamic in our relationship with God that we should never lose sight of. Our condemnation is bound up with God's holy righteousness against us. We are under the wrath of God. Isn't that what John 3 says? 
The one who believes in the Son has life. The one who disobeys the Son doesn't have life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do we ever disobey the Son? Yet at the same time, our hope, our only hope, is in God himself. God is to be feared. He is to be trusted. God is holy and stands against us in wrath. God is loving and sends his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There, brothers and sisters in Christ, is the gospel. Let us pray. You are so far beyond us, heavenly God, that even though your word depicts these things again and again and again with remarkable clarity, sometimes we fail to see them. Have mercy upon us, we beg of you. Forgive our sins, which are many and deceitful. Forgive our sins and give us by your spirit a lowly and a contrite heart that you will not despise. And forgive our sins for the sake of your dear son. And so fill us with your spirit that we may walk in newness of life in anticipation of the resurrection existence that will be ours on the last day. O oh Lord God, have mercy upon us and bring about renewal, revival, repentance, restitution, contrition, holiness, that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We beg of you for Jesus' sake. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.